You're listening to Plenary Session. This week on Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. We're back here in the Plenary Session HQ, and I'm going to take you through three papers that appeared in Nature Medicine on the topic of precision oncology. I had a chance to read these and apply my highlighter to them, and you won't want to miss this discussion of three important articles. Next, we received a letter from Dr. Arjun Gupta, who is a first-year hematology oncology fellow at Johns Hopkins University. He wanted to discuss a randomized control trial of an intervention for mucositis, and per request, he's coming on the podcast to take us through the data and what the limitations may be. Finally, I'm back in Plenary Session HQ with Talal Hilal, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the broader implications of the precision oncology studies that I've just taken you through. You won't want to miss this week's discussion here on Plenary Session. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, I need you to do three things. One, go to patreon.com and back this podcast. Backing an artist you support on Patreon.com is a great way to keep something going. Next, go to the iTunes store and don't just give us five stars. Write a review. Tell us what you like about the podcast and what you don't like. A written review goes a long way. Third, recommend Plenary Session to a friend. If you have a friend, a colleague, someone you think is going to like this podcast, give them a recommendation. We can use it on Plenary Session. Now, what can Plenary Session do for you? Well, we can answer your questions. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or send us an email at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like listener comments and questions and we're happy to talk about them on the next episode. Before I start with this week's deep dive of these three papers, I just want to make a point. You IT people out there, how many passwords should I have to type in to be able to log into all of the applications I need to use at my place of work? I have to type in my password many, many times. I just rebooted this computer for whatever IT reason I do not understand or do not care. And I had to type it in two times. When I log into the HR later, I'm going to have to type it in two more times. I shouldn't have to type it in over and over again. you got to figure this out. One time, type in your password, and then be done with it, okay? Before I hear any more talk about IBM Watson curing cancer, I want you to get this password down to one password. If you can do that, then I'll have a little bit more hope you'll be able to work on the cancer problem with your fancy computers. Okay, first up, three paired papers in Nature Medicine. Now here's a pro tip. If you're gonna print three papers from online first on Nature Medicine, don't print them all off and then drop them because the pages will mix together and then you'll realize there are no page numbers on these papers from Nature Medicine and thus you will be in a very bad situation as I found myself. So bad in fact that the solution is to print them again, and that's what I've done. Well, let's jump right in. Before we start talking about these three papers, I just want to say that I had the chance to discuss some of these results with a few people in oncology who are noted hematologist-oncologists, and I cannot tell you who they were. Because as I presented the results to them, many of them said things that were quite scathing. They said things like, that's a negative study, that's a disappointing result, that is absolutely negative. Then they said things like, the problem with this line of research is that it just is the disproportionate funding it gets. It gets so much funding, 20 million, 30 million, 100 million, 200 million in funding for something that is just so glaringly negative. They said a bunch of other colorful comments. 
and I asked them to come on this podcast and let you know what they thought about this and what they thought about these papers and, and their interpretation of the data, and they told me they would not, that I could not name them, I could not quote them, and I certainly couldn't have them on the podcast. And some of them said things like, look, I have to submit grants, and some of these people are going to review my grants, and if they caught wind of what I think about this research, then they're not going to prove my grant, and I can't have that. Other people were frankly scared. Uh, they're scared to be critical of these authors because there are many noted authors here. And many other people thought that there is no professional value for them to tell the truth about these papers, and there is only a professional penalty. One of them said things like, you know, for those of us who actually focus on a disease-specific site and actually care to do translational biology, these papers are often a bit insulting because the authors have not done the proper biology to validate these targets. And they would not say that on air because they're afraid they're not going to get funding and their career is going to be restricted as a result. Now, of course, this is just an anecdote and you don't have to, you don't have to put too much stock in an anecdote. But why do I tell this anecdote? Uh, I think this is something that's true. It's pervasive. And it's a serious problem in oncology, if we have to be perfectly honest. If you have many, many oncologists who are translational scientists, who are running clinical trials, who are esteemed people, who are shaping the field in their own, in their own way, um, incredibly critical of these broad precision oncology efforts uh, that are incredibly costly and may not be delivering what we wish they were delivering, um, and yet they feel unable to speak publicly and to voice this out of fear of retribution, I think that's a bad situation. Now myself, I am a little perhaps less fearful, but perhaps not as bright. Um, and as a result, I have been critical of several of these initiatives over the years. And I can tell you, there is a fair deal of retribution that comes with being critical of these programs. I tell this story because I think we seriously have to ask ourselves, what do we want the culture of oncology? Do we really want to have a culture where people will not be critical of rather negative or sobering results out of fear of retribution? And if that's the culture you're creating, you're creating an anti-scientific and a very dangerous culture that's going to be prone to groupthink, prone to horrendous expenditures that are not the best use of money, prone to ignoring opportunity costs, and prone to a whole number of other major problems in a science system. That's not good science policy. And for anyone out there who might be someone who does research, if you get criticism to your research and you seek retribution, you're a very bad person. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. The best thing you can do is sift through the criticism. Some of it may be off the mark. Some of it may be true. If it is true, correct your paper. If it's off the mark, ignore it. If it is true, learn from it. If it's off the mark, you know, you can respond accordingly, but if you want to go after somebody for having raised the criticism, there is something seriously wrong with you. You need to get help, and you're not creating a culture that's optimal for science. Okay, so with that said, I will take the heat, and I will tackle these three papers. Before I jump in, I want to give one more bit of background, because we've studied over and over that precision oncology is a very broad umbrella term that means different things to different people, and we need to be very clear about what we're talking about. Okay. So if we're talking about, are there some tumor types for which there are subgroups with some mutation or translocation or molecular abnormality for which there is some drug that targets that molecular abnormality and drugs that aberrancy, and that cancer and that mutation and that drug, that is a good match. There are high response rates, there's often improvements in progression-free survival, and maybe at times there's even improvements in overall survival. 
If the question is, do those drugs exist and those targets exist? The answer is absolutely. Think BRAF V600 and melanoma. Think EGFR mutations and lung cancer. Think EML ALK4 rearrangements and crizotinib. Think ROS1 translocations. We have many, many of those targets. And think of the last year where we're finally seeing some of these targets that may actually have some benefit across different tumor types, such as relocations in TREK, the TREK fusions, and perhaps microsatellite instability high as a marker that goes across tumor types. <clears throat> I say perhaps here because when you're talking about the very, very, very small numbers seen in these tumor agnostic approvals, whether or not there's an interaction between tissue, mutation, and drug, you just simply cannot ascertain that statistically based on the numbers so far. So it's very likely that, let's just take another mutation, V600. V600 BRAF is found in many, many different tumor types, but the response with a drug like Vemurafenib are different based on the tumor type. It's exquisitely active in a tumor like melanoma, less so in a tumor like myeloma. It's active in a tumor like papillary thyroid cancer, less so in a tumor like cholangiocarcinoma. So, you know, the mutation and the activity interact by tissue, and that may be the case for TREK fusions, that may be the case for MSI. We just don't have enough sample size to know that for sure yet, and just how much it, it varies. Anyway, this is kind of beside the point. The real point here is one, are you going to find some of these mutations? Absolutely. And in a paper published by Mark Hart, Emerson Chen, and myself, in JAMA Oncology, we estimate the fraction of all cancer patients with advanced or metastatic cancers who would be eligible for you test for a mutation, you find that mutation, you give an FDA-approved therapy. And our answer was something like 8.3%. And this is assuming that everyone is tested, everyone has good performance status, everyone has free access to the medication. Best case scenario, you're talking about 8.3% of all cancer patients. 8.3% is not the other 92% of cancer patients, the vast majority of cancer patients in 2018 when we published that paper are not going to have a druggable mutation. They're not going to have a quote-unquote genome-directed cancer therapy. They simply are not. And yet the rhetoric, I believe, has far outpaced the reality. And that's why our result, which was an upper-bound estimate, is still quite, quite sobering. And some people were critical of us for giving an upper bound estimate. I think they don't understand the context, which is that if you give an upper bound estimate and you find a very, very low number, far lower than what people think or may intuitively believe, that is quite provocative. You don't want to undercut the estimate if your point is to illustrate that the hype has outpaced the reality. Nevertheless, the other thing we found in this paper by Markhart and colleagues is that the percent of cancer patients that are eligible for one of these therapies that were not in the year prior is about half a percent per year, half a percent to a percent per year. So in other words, it's 8.3% in 2018. It was about 7.3% the year before, maybe 6.5% the year before. You know, it's about half a percent per year growth. And nothing we've seen in the last year has changed that. You know, we have some promising activity with RET fusion. We have promising activity with NTREC. Um, it's it's going to be you you might not even get that half a percent out of it based on how infrequent those mutations are. And then the last point I have to drive home is that the Entrec fusion is, although quoted as tissue agnostic, it is disproportionately found in things like salivary gland sarcoma and soft tissue sarcoma. So it's not truly agnostic. Okay. Why do I say all this? It is clear that there are important molecular alterations required for oncogenesis and that drugging those alterations will achieve some response, and there might be some durability to that, although that will vary. And there was no place where this was more important than BCR-ABLE and CML, but it's important to some degree in other cancers. And in 20 years from now, do I think that percentage from 8.3% will be up to like 20-some percent? Absolutely. 
because I think it's going to continue to grow at half a percent per year because when we plot it out, it's a straight, it's sort of a linear growth. Um, and this has occurred despite the fact that the cost of sequencing is plummeted logfold and the availability of TKIs that could be attempted has gone up by an order of magnitude. It's still kind of climbing up at that low rate. And why is that? Because I think the simple reality is that the majority of cancers are not meaningfully driven by single oncogene drivers, and drugging a single oncogene will likely not create a durable and long-lasting remission and meaningful remission. That's probably the reality of biology. Um, it, it's, not, it's nothing else. It's simply a biological fact. Okay, so if you were having growth like this, and, and you contrast it with other spaces, so just last week, Allison Haslam um, who's a staff scientist who works with me, she published an estimate of the use of immunotherapy checkpoint inhibitor drugs over time. And here you're talking about something like 40% of all cancer patients in America are eligible based on FDA approvals and maybe accumulative responders of something like 12%. Now let's just put that in perspective with the genome drugs, which have been around a heck of a lot longer. And we're talking about 8% eligible and talking about 4% having response. So here we're talking about three times more people having response from checkpoint inhibitors than genome-targeted therapies, despite the fact that first checkpoint inhibitor was approved in 2011, and the first ostensibly genome-directed therapy was approved in 2001. So we're talking about 10-year lag time, and yet it's kind of outpaced it. But I also suspect that with checkpoint inhibitors, we are rapidly seeing, if not already seeing, the, the, the upper-bound ceiling as to the percent of cancer patients who will respond. And you can look through our figures and, and see what you think yourself. The reason I say all this is to give you some background, which is that no one doubts that there are important oncogenes and that we'll continue to find them and that there will be drugs that drug them and that will have some importance um, for improving outcomes in cancer. There is no doubt that that is the case. But as of today, that's true for about 8.5% of cancer patients. That leaves a large group of cancer patients for whom that is not true. Then enter these recent papers and enter this wave of enthusiasm. The real goal here is not that these authors want to find the handful of important driver mutations and find a new drug for that. That's no longer their goal. The goal is how can you scale up the genome-directed strategy to everybody with cancer? They want to scale it up. They don't want 8%. They want 98%. They want to be able to fulfill the promise of precision oncology, which, as the cliched catchphrases go, the right drug for the right patient at the right time, or we'll sequence you and we will find a unique drug or combination of drugs for somebody who have the molecular alterations you and no one else like you has. You know, that's the, that's the kind of catch buzz phrases. So they want to fulfill that promise. So here we're talking about the next use, which is not we're going to do detailed biology to prove these pathways are important. We're going to find novel targets. We're going to kind of continue to eke out small half a percent per year um, growth in the percent of patients eligible. No, here we're talking about how can we scale up these strategies dramatically and get 90% of cancer patients on some unique cocktail of medicines, often containing some genome driven medicines like mTOR inhibitors and MEK inhibitors and BRAF inhibitors and um, and maybe even if we have to use some um, dirty TKIs that hit several targets like serafinib and pazopinib and things like that. Okay, so they want to scale it up. That's their goal, scaling it up. And it is important for them to scale it up because they're not satisfied with just this half a percent per year growth. And in fact, if it were just the half a percent a year growth, one might ask oneself how much resources one ought to pour into the field. So it has to be more in order to justify the large expenditure in this field. Okay, so let's start with the first, the Winther study. 
the Winther study is using both genomic and transcriptomic profiling and allowing patients to be paired with one or more drugs, and they were able to enroll 303 patients. And here's the kicker from the abstract. The progression-free survival ratio, so this is PFS2 divided by PFS1 of 1.5, which is asking if patients are paired with drugs molecularly, do they derive significantly prolonged PFS over the prior PFS? And they've picked kind of arbitrarily the 1.5 cutoff, and there's some other cutoffs, such as the Von Hoff cutoff, but they're all arbitrary. So what do they find? They find that this ratio was achieved in only 22.4% of people, which, quote, did not meet the pre-specified primary endpoint, end quote. So even in this uncontrolled study that used a very soft measure, which is the ratio of PFS, they were only able to achieve that in 22.4% of patients, which did not meet their pre-specified cut point. Ergo, this is a negative study, and it is very, very negative. And as I'm going to tell you, it's actually even more negative than that. The authors throw this in their introduction that I know why they do it, because they've done a lot of this work, but it just sticks in your craw. Quote, not unexpectedly, meta-analyses demonstrate that biomarker-driven trials have better outcomes than trials lacking biomarkers. So this is just, you know, three citations to just absolutely inadequate science that purports to demonstrate this fact. Look, Here's what they do. If you look at all the phase one trials, there's some phase one trials that are taking people without a biomarker. Maybe it's testing some novel um, polo-like kinase drug, some novel cytotoxic, some novel drug. Tar- drug. Uh, it's taking patients, you know, all comers. And there's a few phase one trials that are taking people only with a biomarker. So like, let's say you're making the, the fifth or sixth ALK inhibitor. You just want to take people with ALK rearranged cancers. Um, And then they look back and they say that, oh, patients who get put on trials for which there's a biomarker enrollment, they have greater response rates um, or even better outcomes than patients who get put on trials for which there is no biomarker enrollment. Ergo, precision oncology is a great strategy. But no, that's not the ergo. Because what they haven't done is two things. One, they haven't excluded trials that are really me too trials. So the patients who get put on biomarker trials, that's going to include all the fourth ALK inhibitors, the fifth ALK inhibitors, the fourth BCR ableisms, the fifth BCR ableisms. All these validated targets are going to get lumped in that basket. Next, the people with rip-roaring malignancies, with P53 loss, with RAS mutations, for which there are no good drugs, they're largely going to get put in one arm. So you, you can't really do these kinds of comparisons um, where you're comparing people for whom there is a trial available that hits that mutation against people who may not have those druggable mutations. It's very likely that the mere presence of a druggable mutation confers a better prognosis than the absence of it, and that people with druggable mutations would do better even if you gave them pemetrexid. And that's an old paper by Alex Drillon and colleagues that appeared, I believe, in the Annals of Oncology um, that looked at outcomes of mutation-positive lung cancers given pemetrexid. And you can see Ross 1 does really, really well. Um, which raises the question. So, you know, these kinds of retrospective meta-analyses don't prove much. And if you doubt me, then I would suggest reading some work by Jack West, who's made this point over and over again. Okay, 300 patients were enrolled in this study. The median age was 57. So right now, we should point out that across all these three studies that I'm going to talk about, Winther, Target, and I predict, you know, we're talking about an unusual group of people, which is very young people who've progressed through many prior lines of therapy. And I think the other point that must be made is that it is often thought that the more prior lines of therapy one progresses through, the sicker and frailer the population. We can't forget that the more prior lines of therapy one progresses through, 
the almost surely more indolent biology that patient has because the patient had lived long enough to be able to be exposed to multiple, multiple lines of therapy, of which the last few obviously have diminishing returns and likely have little activity. Um, in other words, these kinds of strategies do enrich for likely indolent biology. And in this case, indolent biology in people who likely have good substrate because they're younger than the average age of cancer patients. The authors talk about, we focused on the efficacy analysis of the 107 patients who received treatment consistent with the molecular tumor board kind of recommendations. They call it clinical management committee recommendations. Um, we need to point out one thing. When you enroll 303 people on your study and they sign a consent, that is the denominator. Those are the number of people who had hope that your intervention would benefit them. And if some of them pass away during the time it takes you to schedule your biopsy, perform your biopsy, get the results, hold your molecular tumor board meeting, decide what therapy they should get, um, those people those people put the same hope in your program as anyone who happened to live that long. It's wrong to exclude those people from calculations. They must be included. Because the alternative is you could just take 303 people and prescribe them all tomorrow etoposide. They can all get etoposide tomorrow, or they can get etoposide the same day. They sign the consent, get etoposide. So the question is, are they better off signing the consent and all getting etoposide, or going through with what you've proscribed, which is this long sequence by which you're going to give them a drug that supposedly is better than had they just gotten etoposide on day one. You see, the intention to treat denominator is the only denominator we have to use in every single study of anti-cancer drugs, particularly when it comes to activity. By that standard, in this paper, Winther, the rate of partial response or complete response among all 303 people is 3.9%. Now, when I told that this morning, somebody said, that's the response rate when you give placebo. And I thought, you know, that's a bit um, cheeky. But in fact, there is a paper by Tanak and colleagues that looked at the response rate among placebo-containing arms only in clinical trials, and it arguably is between 2 and 4%. So it's not much better than getting placebo. And it's actually a little bit worse than, I think, historical examinations of phase 1 trials in all comers. And I would refer you to work by Chris Grady and colleagues that came out of New England Journal about 2005-ish. So this is a negative study. It didn't meet their PFS ratio cutoff. It has a very, very low response rate, 3.9%. A response rate so low that if this was a traditional anti-cancer drug, this would likely not be pursued. Um, and yet the authors you know, do their very best to kind of spin this. They come up with this. A higher matching score reflected a greater deal of matching between the administered treatment and the alterations. Quote, matching scores were determined post hoc by an investigator and the statistician, who were both blinded to the treatment outcome at the time of the matching score determination. Uh, I think that when you're running a very large, costly trial like this, you can't be coming up with a matching score post hoc. I think that's a bit suspicious. Um, okay, so the matching score is basically the number of molecular alterations for which there was a drug given divided by the total number of alterations for any given patient. Uh, and this is similar to the matching score used in one of these other studies. Um, this is an interesting matching score um, because, uh, you know, they're not looking at, say, the whole exome or whole genome sequencing. They're using looking at kind of spot mutation analysis. So there's a lot of the denominator and numerator they just don't know. Um, but what really blows me away is that they dichotomize all of these variables and run regression analysis. So I just want to make one point. Let's look at table two of the paper. Table two is univariate and multivariate analysis looking at what factors are associated with PFS and OS. So they say, 
in let's just look at multivariate analysis, combined arms A and B, A is the DNA arm, B is the RNA arm. People can get more than one therapy. Um, this is A and B on the endpoint of PFS. So they dichotomize age greater than 60 versus younger than 60. And they say, you know what? Uh, it's not significant in multivariate analysis. Sex, women versus men, not significant. Diagnosis lung versus all other tumor types, not significant. Although in univariate analysis, lung, you know, is trending towards being a benefit. Um, ECOG, performance status zero versus anything higher than zero. And that's significant in multivariate. Number of prior treatments, less than two versus greater than two. That looks to be significant in multivariate. And the matching score being high versus low is very significant. So their argument is that because patients with higher matching scores did better, adjusted for these other prognostic variables, there is some value to us doing this Herculean task to sequence them and come up with matched drugs. Um, I got a number of problems here, but let's just talk about the first problem. What are you doing dichotomizing continuous variables? You never want to do this. And if you don't and if you doubt this, you can talk to Frank Harrell and you can talk to many other statisticians. But it simply is losing power and making your results look very odd. Um, for ECOG, ECOG exists in different performance status, zero, one, two, three. You can use that as an ordinal variable and carve it out that way. Um, for the number of prior treatments, that is a numerical value that often ranges between one and seven, and you can just use the number. And for the matching score, the beauty of the matching score is it is a continuous variable. It is a number. You can use that number and perform a linear regression where, oh, and let us not forget that age, it turns out, is a continuous variable, and it can be used as a continuous variable. Put all of the variables in the model as continuous variables. You're maximizing your power of to detect what relationships may exist. And once you run those analyses, if you think it's meaningful to present the results with some dichotomization because you think it can guide patient-doctor decision-making, sure. But in this kind of study, which is really only post-hoc hypothesis-generating kind of stuff, you don't even need to do that. You can just present continuous variables. I find it very odd when people don't present continuous variables because one wonders what other cut points they might have tried before settling on the cut points they decide to show you. And that's always a, num that's always a problem. Um, I think if it was in an epidemiology course, a lot of people would be quite PO'd about that. This thing jumps out at me. Future studies might consider enrolling participants earlier in the disease course. So one of the things the authors say here is to justify why the response rates are low and the PFS is low and the OS is low is that, you know, these are people who are multiply pretreated. And as we all know, being multiply pretreated is a marker that um, the likelihood of response is much lower than in the frontline setting. Therefore, this should move to the frontline. Um, I would say that this is a bit of a fallacy because if you only have a 3.9% response rate in the last line of therapy, that's not the kind of drug that is so transformational you want to move it up to the front line of therapy. And in fact, um, in the absence of randomization, what you're really going to be suggesting is that, and, and by the way, I, I strongly doubt that they're proposing randomization because they've had plenty of time to engage in randomization and they haven't, seek, they haven't taken that opportunity. So if you take these combinations and you move it all the way up to the front line, what you're going to do is you're going to take people for whom current standard of care is based largely on phase three studies that show survival advantage. And that survival advantage may be modest, but at least it's something. It's been proven in phase three studies. You're going to ask those people to not participate in those regimens and participate in your molecular sequencing where many, many people may die while waiting for the results for the first therapy, um, where some people will be paired with things for which there's no response, and a handful of people may have a response. And that response rate is, you know, as the old rule of thumb goes, double it. So it'll be about 8% response rate, which is probably very 
much lower than the response rate they would get if they had followed the treatment algorithm based on histopathology in the frontline setting. Uh, and what you're not doing is you're not going to be able to see how many people you're harming because of delays in treatment uh, while waiting for the results. I would say that it's time to pump the brakes. You don't want to move to the front line. What you want to do is do a randomized trial in the third line, and you're literally asking whether or not anyone is better served by enrolling in the protocol Winther, or if they're better served by just having doctors in the community prescribe treatments based on histopathology. And what I would suggest is you just do the same study, and you take the 303 people, and you just randomize them 150 to the current standard of care, where we can come up with a salvage regimen based on many, many prior phase two studies, our best understanding of biology, et cetera, et cetera, versus you go on the other arm, you go into whatever protocol like this you want. And I suspect that the response rate, you know, that you get through sequencing will be about, well, I suspect it'll be less than what it would be if you just let people prescribe things based on histopath. Your PFS will be lower and your OS will be lower. And it will be shown that actually enrolling on this protocol is likely net harmful, which is what I suspect. Because when you're talking about results where people ask me whether or not the response rate is greater than the placebo response rate, um, that lays, leaves one wondering whether or not the entire strategy is viable. It doesn't leave one wondering whether or not you should move it up to frontline therapy. That would be an irrational conclusion. All right, now let's talk about the target study. Oh, the last thing about Winther. I was trying to figure out the CR rate, and alas, I cannot because it doesn't separately report PRs and CRs. And of course, that matters. Let's talk about target study. Um, target study is the use of circulating DNA to support patient selection for early phase clinical trials. Now, it purportedly tries to overcome one of the obstacles of precision oncology, which is that people don't want to have all these biopsies, uh, especially if they progress through multiple lines of therapy. So can't we use circulating DNA? And they have some argument why circulating DNA has got to be from the most important clone. Uh, of course, there's no assurance or reason to believe that the DNA you happen to find circulating is of any clone more important than any other clone for which the DNA is not circulating but let's leave that be. Um, they basically give the results of the first 100 people. And I've written here on the top of the paper just one fact, which is that of 100 people who enroll in this protocol, there is a 4% response rate and there is 0% response rate of CR. The median age was 56 years. They had received a median of two prior lines of therapy. Um, the authors talk about stable disease. Okay, I just want to make one point here. Stable disease. Look, people, you can look at the paper by Mark Hart and colleagues that we published in JAM Oncology, but when we're talking about precision oncology, which is genome-guided therapy for cancer, when we're talking about that, we are not talking about stable disease. All of the successes in oncology have had robust, rip-roaring response rates. They have high response rates. In the paper by Mark Hart and colleagues where we look at every FDA-approved therapy, the median response rate is 50%. Okay, 50% response rates when you have a driver mutation being targeted with a drug. Um, in these trials, because response rate is so low, the authors do what authors do everywhere when the response rates are low, which is they try to lump in stable disease. But stable disease is almost meaningless when you take a group of patients who are young, who have progressed through many prior lines of therapy, because what that is is a hallmark for people who have slow-growing biology. And if you take people with slow-growing biology and you do nothing to them and you just watch them, you will have a high stable disease fraction because it will take quite a while for all those patients to achieve the 120% tumor growth that is required by resist for progression. So the best way to improve prove your stable disease fraction is to have a long, intricate, exhausting um, time that you take before enrolling your people in your efficacy analysis. The longer the time you put on the front end, the more you'll select for indolent biology. So by necessity, by guarantee, you will get a long stable disease fraction. And that's, in fact, what they see. 
they don't want to see stable disease. Let's be in, let's keep that in mind. They want to see response because when you drug targets that are important, like BRAF, a V600E, you can look back at what the visual images are of patients who get that drug. You're talking about massive response. You're talking about CRs. You're not talking about PRs. And you're talking about response rates that are 50% on average of the FDA-approved therapy. So 4% is quite low. And to talk about stable disease in this context is, um, besides the point, it's a distraction. And I wish the authors would just move beyond it. Okay. I've written nothing else about Target on my page. Last study, I predict. I predict molecular profiling of cancer patients enables personalized combination therapy, the I predict study. And here, here's what they say. The therapies ultimately administered were based on the treating oncologist's choice, with physicians crafting the regimen by incorporating molecular tumor board discussions, as well as patient preference, attention to comorbidities, consideration of drug toxicities, insurance payer coverage of off-label agents, and investigational agent clinical trial availability, hence reflecting actual clinical practice in the United States today. Uh-huh. The authors have conceded here what I have been saying on this podcast for quite a while, which is that the problem with precision oncology isn't that it's being tested in prospective cohorts on protocol. The problem is the rampant epidemic of off-label prescribing that's happening all across America based on pathophysiology alone of highly costly, highly toxic molecular agents based on a sliver of preclinical data of which there is no accountability, no reporting, no futility rules, and simply no oversight. That is the catastrophic, that is the catastrophic problem and that was propelled by the CMS coverage of foundation medicine. And here they concede that right there in the end of the first paragraph. The authors, of course, take 149 patients with previously treated lethal cancer, stage four disease, and roll them on iPredict. And here, scribbled on the front of my paper, I have written, there's a 10% response rate, and the CR rate is 6 tenths of 1%. That is low. They write, no two molecular profiles were identical, hence most treatment regimens were not exactly alike. So in other words, it's personalized. What the heck? Now here, I didn't notice this earlier. I'm just noticing this and I'm reading it to you. The matching score 50% is high and less than 50% is low. But in Winther, it was 0.25 as high and, and 0.3 in the other arm. So 0.2. Why are the matching score cutoffs different? Why is matching score not treated as a continuous variable? I'm just baffled by matching score. It is a continuous variable. Put it in your regression as a continuous variable. Age is a continuous variable. Put it in your regression as a continuous variable. This is not hard. This is Epi 101. This is how you do analyses. I don't understand this. I'm sorry. I simply don't understand. Okay, here, stable disease, disease control rate. Okay, let's skip over that. It's all that matters is the response rate. These are molecularly targeted agents. Ah, here they talk about some of the downsides. 16 out of 83 treated patients, 19% experience greater than one SAE. 19% of people had greater than one match treatment, and two of 10 with no match treatment administered. The study has several limitations, including the lack of a control group. Okay, finally, that's the, the limitation of all these studies. The singular, overwhelming, catastrophic limitation of all these studies. In addition, the number of alterations detected may depend on the number of specific genes interrogated. Yes. Uh, therefore, personalized precision medicine approaches should be instituted earlier in the course of disease. No! No, that is not right. I don't understand this logic. You are not hitting the ball out of the park in the latter line of therapy. And it is possible to do that. That is not impossible. It is possible to do that. You cannot just move up ahead in therapy because you think you're gonna get a higher response rate. Because I promise you, you will get a higher response rate because you could 
literally have a random wheel and spin it, and it can have all the FDA-approved therapies, and you can literally randomly assign therapies to patients in the frontline setting, a MEK inhibitor to someone with lung cancer, a pazopinib to somebody with colorectal cancer. There will be some response rate. It might even be 10%, might be 15%, but that's not a useful question to answer. The question is, is whether or not your strategy of pairing people with therapy is better than what they would otherwise receive, which in the frontline setting typically is a treatment based on robust phase three data in almost every single solid tumor. For all the limitations of oncology, in the frontline setting, we often do make evidence-based decisions. I think that's clear. No, you're not moving up front. That's not the right way to approach this. The right way to think about precision oncology here is that the scalability is an issue. It's a problem. We have to acknowledge that. We will continue to find RET. We're going to find TREC. Um, and, you know, every, every plenary session listener out there who has a patient with non-small cell lung cancer and a TREC fusion for which they received the TREC drug and had a response, go ahead and write me an email. I, I want to know your experience. And, and I'll keep track of how many emails I'm going to get. Um, I want to point out here, we're going we're gonna to find that there are small groups of people for whom there are drivers that are important. There is no doubt about that. But if you want to take that and just jump to this conclusion that everybody will be able to be paired with some combination of therapy, you're making a leap. And this is a leap that's been made in oncology before. When they cured Hodgkin's disease with combination chemotherapy, they too thought they would cure everything with combination chemotherapy. It didn't work out that way. When they were able to achieve some cures with autotransplant, they too thought autotransplant would be scalable to every tumor type. It didn't work out that way. And the same thing with allotransplant, which we forget, but we've tried in things like kidney cancer and other solid tumors, and it did not work out that way. And the same thing with CAR-T. CAR-T is exquisitely potent in a couple of cells, in BCMA-19. It's active. The extent to which it improves overall survival remains unknown because we've not yet had any published results from randomized studies. But... I read in the news that we're going to have CAR-T for every single solid tumor. I highly doubt that that is the case. In oncology, there is this phenomenon that if a little is good, a lot will work every single place. A lot is better. And that is just not always the case, and that's not what history has taught us. Taking stock. One, I want to just say one thing. Uh, we, somebody made this point online that it was it's difficult to read these papers because when you're reporting clinical trials I hate to say it, but I'm a little bit biased. I like the way the trials are reported in JAMA, in the BMJ, in New England Journal. I like the traditional way of reporting clinical trials. When you go to the basic science journals like Nature Medicine and you report clinical trials, I often find it difficult to read because methods are in the back. That's just my pet peeve. I would prefer that these are reported in, in journals that report a lot of clinical trials. It makes it easier for me to read. Um, the next thing I'd say is we have to take sober realistic appraisal of this field. Um, if you're going to ask for a lion's share of research funding, tremendous research funding, tremendous philanthropic funding, tremendous venture capital funding, you're going to take all the funding. There, there are people out there who are not getting adequate funding, who are exploring what many think may be some boring biochemical pathway, and they're trying to really understand how it works, perhaps only in one disease. They are the true historical translational scientists, you know, they, they, they may succeed, they may fail, but if they succeed or fail, it'll often only be for one condition, okay? They may not always be getting the funding that they would like. There's so many other things in cancer that are not getting the funding they would like. But I think precision oncology approaches get a lot of funding. And proof of that is if somebody would, if I could ever get access to this data, I suspect that if you looked across all grant applications, you would see the words precision oncology in bold and underlined quite a bit, and perhaps more than um, uh, applauding uh, 
plotting straightforward, hard, uh, daily, uh, uh, normal science. I think those will not be in bold and highlighted. Okay, so they're getting a lot of funding and a lot of enthusiasm. And the promise isn't that they're going to find a few new targets. It's that they're going to scale it up. But everything about scaling it up is quite, quite sobering. 4% response rate, 10% response rate with 6 tenths of 1% CR, and 3.9% and response rate with no documentation on what percent are CRs. This is likely beneath what you would get if you administer cytotoxic drugs. And as one of the articles concedes, this is already happening in America today. This is already happening. It's already accounting for hundreds of millions of dollars of expenditure, both on the sequencing, on the meetings, um, on the treatments. It needs to be randomized. It needs to have a simple randomized trial which asks, are we currently, what we're doing, trying to scale it up for everybody with any solid cancer? Is that better than just pairing people the old-fashioned way? I have provided the power calculation at the Annals of Oncology in a paper entitled Why CMS Should Have Run My Randomized Trial Instead of Just Paying for Foundation Medicine. Uh, that's literally the title. Uh, you literally can go there for the power calculation. Um, and the other thought that I have when I read these articles is we need critical reviewers in this space. We just can't have articles that keep coming out where everybody who is involved in the process of the article, from the authors to the reviewers to the editors, they can't all be bullish on it. Somebody has to be critical or realistic. Somebody has to ask tough questions like, why have you dichotomized all these variables and why aren't you running continuous variables? Your trial was negative and I see you're trying to salvage something out of it by dichotomizing all these variables and running regression, but why are you dichotomizing continuous variables? We need those people to ask those questions so we can actually learn from this information. Um, I think that is the greatest challenge here. And I'll allude to the final thought, what I said in the beginning of this podcast, which is that there have been a few of us who have been critical of these approaches. I think of Jack West. I think of Ian Tannock. I think of John Hickman. I think of myself. I think of Tito Foho. There are a few of us. There are not a lot of us. And there's a reason why there's not a lot of us, because it was alluded to by all of the people I talked to who refused to let me quote their names and to record them, even though they said some very wonderful things that I would have loved to put on this podcast. And that's because they are frankly afraid of being critical of the people who are running these protocols, of the amount of money involved, um, of their own careers. And that is not a good system you have in science. That is a very, very, very bad thing you have created. And I have no doubt that their fear is well-placed. I have no doubt that they are right. And they are probably prudent for not um, coming on here and, and saying uh, what I made the point, which is these response rates are barely better than placebo. Um, I, I have no doubt they're right to be prudent, but they shouldn't have to feel that way. Um, they should be allowed to voice their criticism. Uh, if science is going to be something better than politics uh, and authoritarian politics, it has to be able to encounter strong criticism and improve from it. And here, the real criticism is twofold. One, if this is the response rate you're bringing to the table, it is unlikely you are better than standard of care therapy, and you may even be harming people. And if you really think you're better, you got to prove it to me in a randomized study. Two, there is no place on earth that you should be moving into the frontline setting until you can at least show in the last line setting you improve survival, and then we'll allow you to march up forward, as is the case for every other therapy in oncology and pretty much every other space in oncology. So I would say those are the two lessons and then the final lesson is, who should pay for this? Who should be funding this? Should we, should we put more of this precision oncology scaling up? I'm going to call this the scaling up effort on taxpayers. Should taxpayers pay for foundation medicine? Should taxpayers pay for off-label prescription? Should patients pay co-pays for that? Or should researchers and companies and genome sequencing companies pay for that, as they would for any other R&D? 
Um, we live in an interesting time because one of the vociferous and frequent justifications for high drug and device and sequencing prices is that that is needed to sustain this threshold of R&D. But apparently that's not only needed for R&D, you also need to saddle patients and taxpayers with huge healthcare spending burdens and drive up everyone's premium to support the R&D effort. Is that really what we are saying? Or should R&D be supported by people who are potentially going to make billions of dollars from the results of R&D? Um, I think these are the tough questions we have to ask. So, Three negative studies, very, very sobering. If everyone was realistically looking at this field, there would be some serious self-reflection and audit, but instead we have calls for full steam ahead. That is a problem. It is a deep and pervasive problem in this profession. An objective look at this data says it's time to hit the brakes, it's time to go back to the drawing board, it's time to revisit this, but instead the discussion calls for full steam ahead. And the fact that the discrepancy is so large between what the discussion says and what the truth is is a serious problem, and the lack of voices articulating this problem is a serious threat to the independence and the scientific pursuit of this field. This is a major issue. The challenge of precision oncology is not just the challenge of biology. It's the challenge of a society trying to be realistic about something that is sucking down a lot of healthcare dollars and a ton of enthusiasm. And that is the deep challenge. Okay, I'm back here in plenary session HQ via Skype with Dr. Arjun Gupta. Dr. Gupta is a first-year hematology-oncology fellow at the Johns Hopkins University. He did his medical training at the All India Institute in New Delhi, India. He went on to do his residency training at UT Southwestern and now is a fellow at Johns Hopkins University. A few months ago, he published a very interesting teachable moment in JAMA Internal Medicine on the importance and use of oral mouthwashes for mucositis, which is both radiation and chemotherapy and the combination induced. Um, he's back to talk about a paper that appeared in JAMA. And listeners should know that you're back because you reached out to the podcast. You emailed us and said, this was an interesting topic. You're knowledgeable on the topic. You want to come on the podcast and talk to listeners about it. And we love to have you, and we love that. So future listeners should know, um, you know, there's a path to get on the plenary session stage. Dr. Gupta, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. And I'd just like to start off by giving a brief introduction about magic mouthwash. Yeah, go ahead, yeah. So for, for people who don't know, magic mouthwash is sort of an umbrella term for mixed medication mouthwashes. It's not a specific formulation, sort of goes by different names, whether that be Larry's solution or Duke solution. Most commonly includes three ingredients, uh, an antihistamine such as diphenhydramine, uh, can include local anesthetics such as lidocaine, and then some sort of antacid mucosal protective agents such as cymeticone and malox. Mm -hmm. yes. And inconsistently can include steroids, antibiotics, antifungals, and opioids. And so one of my primary issues with the term magic mouthwash and how it's used and prescribed is that most providers don't know what they're prescribing when they prescribe magic mouthwash. We don't know the ingredients. We don't know their concentration. We don't know whether our patients are going to get 5 ml or 10 ml or 15 ml. And we don't know whether we're asking them to swish and spit or swish and swallow. And I, and I can't think of too many other medication examples where there's so much inconsistency in what we prescribe. My other major issue mm -hmm. with the routine use of magic mouthwash yeah. 
is the out-of-pocket costs for patients. Yeah. Uh, since it's compounded in individually by different pharmacies without a fixed formulation, this can be very heavy on the pockets. And recent studies show that patients may be spending up to $50 for just a two-day supply. Hmm. And we know that mucositis generally lasts for weeks, especially uh, with radiation going on for, for a few weeks. Yeah, okay. Um, so... So I guess what you're what you're saying is that unlike many many things that we're pre- used to prescribing, where we know exactly what we're giving and at exactly what dose, magic mouthwash is a bit of a dealer's choice. It's whatever your local compounding pharmacy chooses to mix up, and whatever ratio they choose to mix up, but typically has that antihistamine component, that lidocaine component, and some sort of barrier protection like cimethicone. Um, those are the sort of typical things that go into it. But one of the things that concerns you is it's a bit like saying have a glass of herbal tea because you don't know what herbs are going into that tea. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about mucositis. Um, You know, I think you and I have both spent time in head and neck cancer clinics where we see many patients undergoing often definitive chemo RT, which is thought to be curative in, in certain settings, in local locally advanced head and neck cancer settings. And this is typically... There's some debate whether platinum should be given Q3 weeks or weekly, but platinum or sometimes cetuximab is often a backbone of the, of the chemotherapy part, and it's often paired with daily radiation that goes on for something like five to seven weeks, something like that, uh, with different sort of target gray, anything from maybe 60 on the low end to some people push it to 75 gray. You're nodding your head. Uh, tell us, when you, when you give someone a treatment like this for head and neck cancer, and the patient comes to you and say, I have mucositis, what do they mean? How bad is it? You know, can you can you give us a sense of that? Well, I've never personally experienced it, but I know I know from speaking to multiple patients and, and even some patient advocates on Twitter that it's perhaps the most dreaded and horrible complication mm-hmm. of cancer chemotherapy uh, that one can face. And I've had patients who've uh, just in the first year of fellowship who we're on a treatment sort of curative intent, uh, doing great uh, otherwise say that we don't want to continue with this paradigm because of just the mucositis. So it's a very, very horrible complication just by itself. Yes. And then can secondarily lead to so many other complications such as infection, bleeding, malnutrition, yes. all of which can lead to inferior outcomes. I think that's well put. And um, of course, there's the range from sort of uh, just sort of mucosal changes that are visible to this extreme range where you're saying that it's it can be so bad, so debilitating that somebody says, I want to stop receiving a curative treatment. And I've had the experience where patients have had to be hospitalized and be put on PCA for mucositis. You're nodding your head. Requiring IV narcotic medication for mucositis. You agree? It can get that bad. Absolutely. So now tell us about this. So this is a randomized controlled trial study. It's an alliance study. Uh, it is a three-arm randomized controlled trial that tests doxepin, diphenhydramine lidocaine antacid, which is a, the sort of compounded thing that you were talking about in the beginning, or placebo. Tell us a little bit about what this study was and what they found. So this study was, was a relatively large study uh, done over a couple of years at multiple U.S. centers where they recruited patients receiving uh, radiation for head and neck cancers with or without concurrent chemotherapy uh, and tested the effectiveness of two medications. One was doxepin, as you said, and the other was this DLA preparation, diphenhydropine, lidocaine, and antacids. Uh, and they compared both the intervention groups with placebo independently. They did not compare the two interventions against each other. 
uh, and they looked at short-term pain control, so pain control within four hours of administration of the drug, uh, and, and looked at uh, how effective each of these interventions was. And, uh, and what was their, what was the effect that they sought to see? You know, what, what were they powered to look for? What, what did they want to see? So they were hoping to uh, sort of define a clinically meaningful response as a 3.5 point reduction in their pain scale. Uh, this is sort of validated uh, methodology in this field. Yeah. Uh, but they found that for both doxepin versus placebo, uh, as well as uh, DLA versus placebo, this benefit uh, was not seen, even though the clinical benefit was more than that of placebo alone. I see. So, um, uh, so you're saying that they had a statistically significant result that both of these arms outperformed the placebo arm, yet it failed to meet the pre-specified threshold, was, which was what was thought to be clinically meaningful improvement in mucositis. Correct. And, and what was this, you know, one of the ways in which they quantified this pain score was by looking at the difference in the curve over time. They're, they want to sort of quantify the pain over a period of time. Is that right? That's part of their primary endpoint? Yep. So their primary endpoint was uh, pain control and integrating that over the first four hours after the drug administration. I see. So, okay. You, you're, you're a little bit critical of this paper. So I guess, but before you jump into the criticism, I want you to say, you know, we were talking a little bit before this, and you said, you know, you do give a lot of credit. You give a credit to the journal for publishing this. You give credit to the investigators. Tell us a little bit of what, what you give them credit for. Well, I think supportive care trials are generally underrepresented in our major medical journals and our funding. Uh, I'm a huge supportive care advocate and hope to do supportive care trials. Uh, I think this is a very, very horrible side effect, and we don't have great treatment options for mucositis at all. And I'm actually really glad that uh, uh, this paper was published in JAMA and hopefully gets the appropriate publicity so that people realize the need uh, for more trials like this and finding novel solutions for, for complications such as mucositis. The last thing that I want to come out of this podcast and in general is to take away and even minimally or moderately effective treatment for uh, mucositis since we don't have good treatment options. Yeah. Uh, if, if you look at sort of advances in sort of, in sort of similar mucositis caused by mTOR inhibitors, for example, with Evrolimus, we recently had the phase two SWISH trial published, which shows that prophylactic dexamethasone drastically reduced uh, the rate of oral stomatitis mucositis from sort of 33% to just 2%. So I'm hopeful that this encourages research in this setting and, and we can come up with really, uh, really transformative trials. And let me just ask you there, um, that was for uh, patients who are about to take mTOR inhibitor Everlimus. Was that for RCC? Uh, that was for breast cancer. Oh, I see. So was it people getting a bolero regimen with Everlimus plus eczemestane? Well, then, of course, I will caution listeners, as we all know from Bolero, extended follow-up has been published in the Annals of Oncology that shows PFS but no OS benefit in that metastatic. You're smiling because you know that's something I like to talk about. Because if you have a drug that you administer in metastatic breast cancer and it improves PFS in the absence of OS but adds toxicity, some people will call that a marginal drug, but others would call it an ineffective or harmful drug. Okay, but that's, a, but that's good to know that at least there's a way to mitigate the side effect there. We're one to prescribe it, which 
we can have a little debate about later. I want to talk to you a little bit more at the end of this to kind of commend you for this interest in supportive care, which is, I think, undervalued. I think I will agree with you there. Absolutely undervalued. And so it's good to see good, high-quality, randomized trials getting the recognition they deserve. Okay, now tell us what you think this trial is missing, what they could have done better. What are the limitations? Well, I think the authors uh, acknowledge themselves in the limitations that uh, this 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 publication was more looking at short-term pain control. So we were discussing the primary endpoint, and uh, we know that pain from mucositis and discomfort can extend for days and weeks. And this was a sort of very focused study on just a sort of four-hour pain control. So I think that's something that we can uh, look at in future trials. Uh, I think doing head-to-head comparisons can be more helpful as well to know which one of these drugs is perhaps more effective than the other one, even if they're not completely effective. Uh, and, and what and arm would you, you would have added an arm to this study, is that fair to say? I would have liked to. Yes. Uh, I think uh, there was a publication in 2000 which had shown sort of equivalent efficacy of a salt and soda uh, mouthwash, which can typically be prepared at home using just a teaspoon of salt, a teaspoon of sodium bicarbonate in one liter of water. And that had shown equivalent outcomes uh, to a chlorhexidine mouthwash and a DLA mouthwash very similar to the one used in this trial. So I wonder, instead of this Aura Sweet SF placebo solution used yes. in this latest trial, if, if sort of a salt and soda paradigm would have made sense either as a fourth arm or even as the placebo group. That's well put. Um, and just to kind of push this thinking along, because I, I really like what you're saying here. Um, uh, I think that it, it, it is one thing, and it is important to show a reduction in short-term pain scores, which is what the primary endpoint of this study was. That's important. But you're making a very good point, which is that mucositis is something that patients often have to deal with for many, many weeks. And as you alluded to in the beginning of this podcast, um, you know, you said this is the reason people discontinue treatment. One can imagine future trials that want to sort of take supportive care trials to the next level can power and design their study for dose interruptions and dose delays and actually discontinuation of treatment um, to, to show that supportive care trials can actually lead to greater treatment delivery. You can also look at pain outcomes over a longer period of time. It seems like you're endorsing that because we know that this is not a short-term problem. It's often a long-term problem. Um, the one thing that I think is so intriguing about this paper was that the placebo group had an 8.7-point re- improvement in symptoms. And the placebo in this study is, as you mentioned, an Aura Swish sweet sugar-free syrup paired with water. So I've never tasted this, although I would be quite curious to try it. <laughs> but it is a uh, non-sugar-containing sort of sweet solution. So I imagine it's like mixing up a teaspoon of, I don't know, aspartame in a glass of water or something like that and adding something to make it a little bit viscous. That's the control arm. The control arm improves pain 8.5 points. And then the additive improvement by giving the active, quote-unquote, active drugs is something like three points so that, you know, the best arm was doxepin was 11.7. And you said that they sort of pre-specified they were hoping for, what, three and a half points improvement. You're nodding your head. So I guess what I find so interesting is that the bulk of the improvement in this study is a placebo response, a response to feeling as if you're doing something about it, um, which I think makes showing that an active ingredient has an additive value much more difficult. And it actually, I think, makes your fourth arm very, very, very interesting. 
what would it be like if one were to dissolve a tablespoon of, uh, of sodium bicarbonate in a glass of water, gargle with that, maybe add a little bit of sodium chloride to that, get a little bit salty too. One might find that that might be quite close to the intervention arm here. And so I think you're, you know, you're, really, you're really asking a very good question here. And I think it is an intriguing study. Uh, I think it does kind of show the, the power of the placebo response, even in a condition that is very, as we, we will both agree, a very tough condition. Uh, what else are you thinking about when you look at this study? Well, I'll be working on that trial protocol, writing that up just tonight so that uh, I can do that before listeners get to it. Uh, oh, so, but, oh, you are thinking about <laughs> uh, No, but, but on a serious note, I think the, the other thing to take away from this paper mm-hmm. was that most patients in every single group needed further analgesia, yes. uh, which sort of just points that, that this was a short-term pain control study. These patients suffer a lot. Uh, and and one of the takeaways that I that I want for for listeners is that uh, just prescribing something in a busy clinic. So when you put in for magic mouthwash and expect patients' symptoms to magically get better is perhaps not going to happen. Most patients do need um, further treatment with with pain control, whether that be with opioids or other agents, mm-hmm. and careful follow up for complications. And we shouldn't really prescribe magic mouthwash and and hope for magic. I think that's well said. Um, I think that, you know, having had the experience of following patients with head and neck cancer going through this protocol, I found some other things to be quite helpful. Um, of course, these patients are often getting weekly or Q3-week chemotherapy, so they're seeing the provider with some frequency. But it's often quite helpful, in my experience, to have them come back maybe once or even twice a week and touch base with a, with a, with a physician assistant, a nurse practitioner, or, or a nurse to get somebody to assess their symptoms and see how they're doing. Sometimes even give them a liter of fluid because as you know, often PO intake can be quite poor. And that little bit of supportive care often goes quite a long way and is really kind of necessary to get people through uh, you know, a very tough regimen. I think that the other thing I think about a lot with this regimen is, um, you know, anytime in oncology where you have a regimen that is very difficult and that is able to achieve some durable remissions in patients, and I, I like to say durable remission here because as we all know, that many of the patients who suffer from head and neck cancer, even though you may be able to eradicate the one local regional tumor, they often have field effect carcinogenesis. And unfortunately, when you compare their outcomes uh, and their overall mortality curves, often it, it feels as if there is no plateau in the curve. And it's often, you know, um, it seems as if it's a, it's a very tough cancer to treat um, and, a, and a population that has facing competing risk. Um, one of the things I think about when you have an aggressive therapy in such a situation is we need to do everything we can to optimize how to deliver the treatment in the group of people in whom we can achieve durable remission. We also need to be committed to identifying perhaps groups of people in whom durable remission may not be possible and insofar as possible spare them the morbidity of treatment that may not be able to result in a durable remission. I think we often forget about that other side of the coin in oncology. You're nodding your head a little bit. Let me ask you a little bit about, do you have a tumor-type interest in oncology, or, or is your interest truly supportive care broadly? Well, I'm going to be doing GI oncology simply because I think that's one of the lower-hanging fruit, and our inpatient solid tumor service is uh, often filled with patients with biliary stent complications, small bowel obstruction, nausea, vomiting. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why I was attracted towards GI oncology other than the fact that our program director, Dr. Ross Donahauer, is super motivating. Yes, and I think um, I, uh, listeners may not know this, but uh, 
several years ago, I spent a year at Johns Hopkins. You know, I did my public health degree there. And I attended, uh, I think there were twice weekly lectures that were given. And I attended, I think, the vast majority of those lectures that were given to the, to the uh, Johns Hopkins Oncology Fellows. And, uh, uh, and Russ was there quite often. And uh, I think he is a very inspirational figure. I think because he's a consummate physician, he's incredibly thoughtful. He, even decisions that many providers take for granted, I think he he makes himself sort of go through that process and think about a great deal. And he doesn't always conclude what I think the majority of people may conclude. I think he's quite thoughtful and he often reaches independent conclusions. You're nodding your head, you agree? Absolutely, I, he's, he's one of the main reasons why I wanted to come to Johns Hopkins and I'm very, very happy with, with where I am right now. Now, wonderful. Well, I think uh, on the last thing I wanted to ask you, in your teachable moment on this magic mouthwash, you alluded to not just the financial harm, but isn't it possible that some of the components in the magic mouthwash may make patients vulnerable for certain types of complications or infections, and, and that's also a problem? You want to talk about that? Yeah, so we, we can talk about the three sort of standard options or, or the three standard ingredients. Diphenhydramine, as we know, is an antihistamine and can be absorbed systemically leading to sort of all sorts of complications such as uh, delirium, confusion. Uh, people also sometimes complain of viscous lidocaine, sort of numbing up their mouth. A couple of patients have in fact told me that this is worse than the mucositis itself. Mm. My mouth is so dry and I can't feel anything. Uh, and then come in sort of the more atypical ingredients such as steroids, which can increase the risk of infection, uh, mm -hmm. unnecessary exposure to antibacterials and antifungals. Yes. Uh, and then sort of unregulated use of opioids. Uh, I'm a firm believer that if patients need appropriate pain control, we should prescribe them opioids, uh, as we often need to do in a systemic manner in patients with severe mucositis, whether that be with transdermal patches or with a patient-controlled analgesia, as you said. Uh, but sort of just mixing anything you want in the solution willy-nilly is, is not what we should be doing. I think that's well put. So... Dr. Gupta, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on the podcast and talking about this study. Uh, if there are future supportive care trials that come out, we'd love to have you back to take us through them. Um, and if you see something that uh, crosses your desk you think is interesting, uh, we'd love to have you come and talk about it. Because I think this is, this is as you point out, under-recognized, important. You commend the investigators. I think you did a wonderful job of that. But also point to things you think might have been improved upon. I think that fourth arm, the salt and soda, would have been you know, really wonderful. And I think it would have been very illustrative. Uh, and if I was a betting man, which I'm not, I bet it would have been comparable to uh, both of the active arms. And actually, it probably would win in a head-to-head -head comparison in terms of cost, safety, and efficacy. But those are just my speculation. And speculation is no place on this podcast. It only belongs on Twitter, as we all know. So, well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Talal Halal. I guess here's my questions for you. Yeah. So, you know, I guess there are a few things here. One, is it true that there are some cancers that are driven by single oncogene driver events for which drugging the oncogene is beneficial? And I want to say absolutely that's true. We've seen that with EGFR, mutant non-small cell lung cancer. We've seen that with ALK rearranged non-small cell lung cancer. We've seen that with BCR able uh, the fusion kinase protein in CML, that there are clear oncogenic drivers. And if you drug those oncogenes, often kinases, you can achieve remissions 
some more durable than others. But the reason I think that some of us are critical of the precision oncology mentality is we want to take stock of this approach. So one, despite the fact that there's been so much enthusiasm for this approach and so many billions of dollars thrown at it for now 20 years, um, the truth is that there are only a minority of tumor types that we have discovered have such single driver oncogenes. You know, we, I've tried to quantify this and we, we provided a generous upper bound estimate that suggested that like 9% of all cancer patients would have one of these, you know, oncogene driver cancers. And then since that paper, we've had the Trek data and we've had RET data. And I think people are enthusiastic about these sort of um, tumor agnostic, quote unquote, uh, approvals. But again, here are a few caveats. One, even though it's agnostic, if you look at something like tropomycin receptor kinase fusion, that's not happening randomly in all tumors equally. It happens mm-hmm. a lot in salivary gland tumors. It happens a lot in infantile dermatofibroma. It happens a lot in soft tissue sarcoma. And it doesn't happen so much in breast cancer. It doesn't right. happen so much in lung. And I've even heard some expert lung cancer doctors admit they haven't seen a case, period. You know, you're nodding. You've heard people admit that. Mm-hmm. Um, enter the new mentality. So my belief on this topic is that I think we will continue to find driver oncogenes. And if you plot them out over time, I think we find that about half of 1% of cancer patients benefit in 2019 who didn't benefit in 2018. And I think that'll be two in 2020 and 2021 and 2022. And they may be very rare subgroups that have some unique histopathologic features or something unique about the presentation. And we're going to find some new fusion kinases that are druggable. I have no doubt. But that isn't enough. And the reason it's not enough is that it's just a low percentage. Um, and I think there are people out there who want it to be much, much higher. They mm. want to say that we're going to take everybody with cancer and we're going to test their whole genome and transcriptome. And we're going to find that there is a way we can drug the driver genes in these broad tumor types. Right. And I think that's where the current paper enters because they're saying we're taking all comers, relapse refractory cancer, we're sequencing them, and we're matching, what, 50% of people with therapy. And that is what gives me pause because the easiest way to match more people on therapy is to really lower the bar for what it means to match. And the easiest way to lower the bar is to say, we're going to take any match upstream or downstream on a very complex pathway. We're going to look at drugs that may weakly inhibit the target, that may not be exquisitely potent for the target, but may have some avidity for the target, uh, and anywhere upstream or downstream in the path. And you will find a lot more matches. Um, And also, I think uh, one of the things that I may have read on Twitter, too, is did they use combination therapies? Did they? Yeah, in some cases, yeah. Did they, like try to target both two two pathways at the same time which obviously yeah. makes it um you know i mean something like serafinib you can use serafinib if you have mutations in multiple pathways right and yes. so so in that case then anybody can get serafinib right i mean if you have uh i can think of at least six different pathways that can be targeted <laughs> right i was but, joking with somebody that um somebody was telling me or there's good basic science that supports the addition of venetoclax to something. Right. And I said, well, part of the reason is that BCL2 is like linked to so many pathways. So you're right. going to find some preclinical reason why a BCL2 inhibitor is going to do well, you know, in like every tumor under the sun. But that doesn't mean that they're all equally plausible, I think. Right, right. And let me just double check this combination. Personalized combination there. Yeah, they did. Uh, What's your, uh, you know, one of the things I remember hearing um, George Sledge talk about at ASCO once 
is um, the idea of, well, these next-gen sequencing methods are becoming so cheap now and so abundant that it's kind of like ordering a CBC. Yeah. And the more we use them, the more the easier you're going to get them and, and the cheaper they're going to become with time. And so then you get the snapshot of the patient's genome. Um, and maybe, maybe it'll be useful, maybe not, but it doesn't matter because it's like a CBC. What, what's your view on that? That's a great question. I guess my view on that is, um, I, I guess I would say, it's like a blood test, but it's like every single blood test in the laboratory. It's like a CBC, but also like a folic acid and a B12 and a methylmalonate and a homocysteine and a, and right. a lead level and a, and, a chem, and, a, and, a, and a potassium and a phosphate and uh, an insulin level and uh, albumin and a prealbumin. And a t you know, it's like every blood test because, for instance, like foundation medicine, 324 gene panels, 324 things. Um, and so what I want to say is that, yeah, the cost of the test is gonna drop, absolutely. And you can run it cheaply and easily. And my worry is not that you're gonna find some NTREC, you're gonna find some TREC fusion. I know you will. But for every TREC fusion you find, you're gonna find a lot of other people that you are tempted. You're gonna find an FGFR mutant in pancreas cancer. And now we have an FGFR mutant drug in uh, an FGFR inhibitor for bladder cancer, second line approval based on very, you know, we can debate that another day. Mm -hmm. You're gonna find an FGFR mutant in pancreatic cancer. You're gonna find somebody with a couple of pathway mutations for which serafinib is seductive. Because serafinib, as you know, as you pointed out, it affects a lot of pathways. You're gonna find people who have cholangiocarcinoma, of which, you know, first line treatment is GEMSYS, based on a randomized study, but they may not want chemotherapy, and they may find that they have a mutation for which uh, pazopinib has some low-level inhibitory strength. And so what you're going to do, I think, is it's not the validated targets that I worry about. It's the temptation to try something is what I worry about. And let me right. ask you, in your, without naming names, in right. your experience, have you noticed in oncology that people are tempted? You're nodding. Yeah, I think there's uh, there's there's a two two side temptation to it. Some folks, some attendings here are you know they they I don't know if they're just delusional or um, or they're just so hopeful yeah. that they you know they find something they're like yeah we can try this targeted agent, no data or or maybe if there is some data. Uh, it's so weak and clearly the response rates are like 5% or something yeah. and, and he kind of gives false hope to patients. And then there's the other side where where the attending is sort of trying to t take an unbiased position and says, look, this is what we have. I don't think it's going to work, but we can try it. And the patient will say, all right, fine, let's try it. And then there's the, there's the folks that just don't, they'll just don't even offer it. They probably won't even test it, right? So they'll just yeah. say... Um, no, we have nothing left. Hospice is good. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and I think that um, the for the patient who may not be satisfied with that answer, they can seek out a provider that they will eventually find a provider that will run the testing and perhaps offer one of these drugs. Yeah, but in my there's mind, there's always what, this yeah. mentality that I struggle with. You know, there's this mentality of, well, he's going to die anyway. Why not try it? That right? is the mentality. Yeah, and I don't. I don't know. It's, it's it's weird for me to to wrap my head around it. Yeah, I mean, sure, they're gonna die, but are they gonna die with, be coming here, spending all their money on your visits and the drugs and and, and the side effects, or are they gonna die, a little bit more peacefully? You know, and and that's really the question. It's not that you're gonna cure them with any of these targets, and I think a lot of the folks even that do offer them, know that. Yeah. You know, they're just like, 
hey, it's uh, it's uh, let's just try it. It's okay. You know, I mean, you're gonna die anyway. You might as well have all these side effects before you die. Why not? You know, and, and I, I think I, that's that's problematic. <laughs> yeah, I think you know, but I think you're honestly putting I think how people view it, which is that. What's the downside in taking somebody who has a terminal condition and allowing them to try something that it isn't, it's not like trying cupping. This is like trying something that has, you know, basic science behind it. Pathway, yeah. understanding of biochemical pathways is behind it. Not, you know, something kind of uh, nonsensical. It's something that's real, that's behind this. And I guess, you know, I, I struggle to kind of answer that question because I feel like, um, I feel like it's been answered in a different context. And I, I guess I, here's what I mean by that. Um, I think it is abundantly clear that um, that uh, that there is this human tendency to want to try things in these situations. And if there weren't that tendency, um, and, and if there weren't any downsides to it, I think we have to ask ourselves, you know, why would we have the FDA at all? Why not just have a market where let doctors and evidence and journals decide what drugs are used? And just why do you need any arbiter for what chemical compounds can be sold on the market? But I think we have the arbiter because we do understand that people who are sick and often dying, who also do not have long knowledge or experience with medicine, may be inclined to try things that, that if they really had a total knowledge of the situation, they may not want to try. And so that's right. why the state kind of protects people from bad choices. The same way the state makes you wear a seatbelt, uh, right. you know, to protect you from an irrational choice, I think. Um, and I think you and I have... I, well, I, I don't I want to speak for you, but I, you can tell me if this is true. We have seen people who are sick and vulnerable who have taken investigational or taken drugs, cancer drugs, who've had a side effect they didn't expect, right. who, which, have, which makes life way worse than the way they were before. Would you agree that that's happened? Yeah. Be that peripheral neuropathy where people say, you know, I was dying, but now I'm dying with peripheral neuropathy, and that's horrible. Be that yeah. hypophysitis be that thyroid failure, be that pneumonitis, you know, some, yeah. we've all seen drug making disease worse. And that, I think, that knowledge and recognition that drugs can make disease worse, that the best laid plans of mice and men don't often succeed, and there are many, many promising drugs with really good pathophysiology that just didn't work, and the fact that the people in this position are very vulnerable. And, and then the other thing I think is, like, sometimes I wish... What if informed consent had more than just one provider in the room? So one of the mm. things I fear is that uh, perhaps we've had this experience where if you have a gung-ho provider, that's not really a good informed consent. That's really kind of a pep talk for somebody to take a, a therapy. Right. Sometimes I feel like you need some balance in that room. There should be a pro therapy and a and a, perhaps a pro good quality cop, of bad life. cop yeah good cop bad cop yeah, yeah. that's a good, that's a great idea because it's always you know it, it ends up coming back to well, what if the patient wants it what if the patient wants to try it and it all depends on how you put it to the patient how you know do you put a spin on it i just recently talked to one of my co-fellows here who has a patient who had a heart transplant and a kidney transplant and now has squamous metastatic cancer of some sort and you know he's progressing on chemo and so do you use a checkpoint inhibitor with a heart and a kidney transplant mm -hmm. forget the kidneys fine i'll go on dialysis but um what if his heart fails yeah you know and then the question becomes well he's going to die from the metastatic squamous cancer anyway do you want to die with you know failed heart or a functioning heart either way it's the same thing and that's where you know i'm like well okay well just put it to the patient that way what, what does he prefer to die from right um but how do you put it 
You know, do you say this is what I would do, or do you say these are the options? I don't know. You know, I think there are always these areas where, of course, and the patient there now is looking at death either way, right? Yeah. It's very hard to make a rational decision when you're going to die regardless. Um, I think it's that's a very, very, very hard, and I think, you know, you have to strive very hard to, I think, present someone with the pros and cons of both approaches without inserting your own feelings into it. And I think that's very, very hard. And I wish that's something yeah. that, you know, we taught more. You know, I kind of want to come back to this, this papers in nature medicine. You know, what, what, what kind of troubles me about it? So yes, there are these validated druggable mutations. Yes, there are drugs on market. Then there's this huge group of people with relapse refractory cancers for whom they don't have one of those as an option. And those people are getting enrolled in these broad sequencing transcriptome efforts and getting paired with drugs. So take 2,000 people. 1,000 people are doing this strategy. There, there's a delay. And in this paper, we see people die while they're waiting for the, you know, the test results to be processed and getting a suggestion back. There's a delay. And some people are given the drug. And some people, it makes more sense than other people. There's this high match and then the weak match. And then some people have a response. And the, lo and behold, the total response rate is 11%. Okay, that's not great. And there's some duration of response, and cure is likely fleeting and not, does not occur in the study. What I wonder is, if you took that same thousand people and you just prescribed, you know, salvage regiments as we've always done based on histopath, typically nonspecific etoposide, you know, gem, cisplatin, 5-FU a different way if you've had 5-FU before, so we're going to give it continuous rather than bolus, or, you know, or we're going to try sapecitamine, we'll try something like that, some nonspecific dirty cytotoxic drug. Um, there's no delay. That's one thing. So you're mm -hmm. treating people a lot sooner. So there may be some people whose survival is extended because they're getting something um, mm -hmm. without having to wait for the match. Um, and there's going to be some response rate. And in fact, there's data that goes back to New England Journal papers of what is the response rate in these kind of populations. And, you know, it looks like 16 to 20%. I'm quoting a paper from New England Journal in 2005. And there's going to be some survival. And so in my mind, the question becomes, for this group of people, are we doing what's best for them by putting them on these sequencing efforts? Um, or would the overall survival of this entire group be better if they were just paired with a nonspecific cytotoxic based on histopath or whatever you know and their prior regimens? And I think... That's a question that no one is really asking. I mean, there's very right. little effort to ask that question, but I think it's a key question. And I wonder, and I think the reason no one's asking the question is that people don't even entertain in their mind that it's possible that these older drugs are going to beat this sequencing effort. And I think that has more to do with hype than it has to do with, I think, a cold, hard look at the facts. What do you think? Right. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think we all have this um, uh, tendency to uh, lose faith in cytotoxic chemotherapy uh, after the first or second line. I mean, I guess it depends on how refractory the disease is, right? Yeah. We've all seen these patients who have gotten first, second line chemo, and then you start the third, you know, it's, it's on there, it's on the NCCN, you know it's approved, but they just kind of blow through it. And if you view these patients as the same type of biology, you know, they're going to blow through anything, then you're never going to think giving chemo is a good idea. Yeah. So that question of, you know, how refractory is this disease? How aggressive is this disease? You know, to, to make them eligible 
to be on that kind of trial with chemo versus targeted agents, right? That's the question because there's always this feeling that we have, and I don't know how much is based in fact that, yeah, no, this is going to blow through all the chemotherapy agents because I've seen it, you know, I, I, there's hyper progression after a second line of chemo. There's no way I'm going to give five a few and it's going to do anything. Right. And I, you know, I, I, I agree with you 100% that when we practice medicine in our clinics, we certainly have the experience that as you go down the lines of therapy, that the response rates are very, very low, if at all, that there are a lot of people in whom the tumors are, that are growing very, very aggressively. But I think the reason that I think the situations are a little bit different, these sequencing efforts, these large clinical studies, they're not taking those patients. They have a mm. selection filter they've put on those patients, which is typically a referral or a long wait. And many, many of the people that you and I see in our clinics who do grow, their cancers grow aggressively, they unfortunately pass away before they can even be screened for these visits. And right. then you screen the people for the visits and you see who match and you have all these lag times. And what you're really doing is you're finding that population of patients um, who have progressed on multiple lines of therapy in whom the tumors are still uh, not very aggressive. And right. those people, if you look back at some very old studies, you give those people five FU over again, there's going to be some response rate. Those are the people that were enrolled in this New England Journal study of yeah. seeking five, you know, phase one clinical trial. They have a 16%, 20% response rate. Because I absolutely agree with you that if you just took the person, average person in the clinic who's progressed through two prior lines with a solid tumor, you're not going to get a 16% response rate with a cytotoxic. You're not going to get an 11% response rate with a genome-driven therapy because the vast yeah. majority of those people will have rapidly growing cancers. And unfortunately, there's probably very little that will have any response at all. Um, yeah. But, yeah, but I don't think no, that's I see, I see your yeah, point. Yeah. yeah, I see your point. I think if you select those patients out to, to, to include them in your genome-driven efforts, then there is a likelihood that those same patients will probably benefit from chemo as well. Yeah, And, and that's, you know, I think, yeah. um, but like you said, hype is a problem. Yeah. <laughs> hype is a problem, and I don't know how to get rid of it. Um, <laughs> it's very annoying. I, I, I don't... <laughs> Whether it's medicine or other fields of life, I just don't get it. But yes, I, uh, I I wonder. I mean, in this particular field of hype, I see hype coming in a few ways. There, I guess I would say, there's a financial component that I think we have to be honest, which is that um, a lot of people are profiting from the testing or from the drugs. A lot of the people who are proponents of this have financial conflicts with those testing companies or the drug companies. There's also a conflict that doesn't get discussed as much, which is the institutional conflicts, which is that, um, unfortunately, academic medical centers are engaged in a competition with community hospitals and other centers for patients. And this competition, I think, leads to, I think, bad behavior. We see it with the Da Vinci robot. If you don't have a robot... Because who wants a regular doctor doing this? So you don't have a robot, you're not competitive in the market, even if right. having a robot is no better than not having a robot. If you can offer sequencing for everybody, if you can offer, you know, tr even trials become some sort of, you know, competitive right. edge to gain market share. And I think that is part of the problem because, the m because then you, you need this to be promising so you can justify your advertisement. Yeah, mm -hmm. you're nodding. You yeah, feel as if this happens. There's no way to get over it. I don't think there's there's a lot of solutions around it. I think it's just part of life. And um, you know, the other the alternative would be to to, to be like North Korea, I guess. <laughs> 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 don't get excited about anything. <laughs> they have nothing to get excited about. But I guess oh. I would say that, uh, as in terms of a medium uh, or a, a something in between, when I lecture in Europe, 
I feel the response to these these sorts of strategies is very different. Yeah. Because in Europe, they're often thinking about how they can do the most with every dollar. Um, right. And there's often not such strong competition between centers. In fact, in the nation, it may be about, you know, how can we optimize cancer care in this whole region? And we have almost total control of the region, rather than how can one hospital siphon patients away from the other hospital? And for that reason, I think enthusiasm for sequencing everybody every day is lower. Enthusiasm mm -hmm. for off-label use is lower. Every off-label drug use means that they may not be optimizing the delivery of drugs that actually do benefit patients in proven studies. Um, so I feel that the response to my... Do you think that yeah. would be better to work to be in that kind of atmosphere as a physician or as a patient? Okay, so that's, that's a great question. Uh, so I guess I would say um, a couple things. So one, I would say as a physician... I think, um, you know, I think you, you can feel as if you're doing the best for your patients both here and there. I mean, I think we're able to craft our practice, you know, in terms of good medical care. So I, I'm not sure how different that will be. In terms of being a patient, I often hear people point to statistics of why the U.S. is better than being a patient there. But, you know, some of the statistics they point to are just bad. Five-year survival metrics, heavily okay. biased by, by stage migration and lead time bias. Mortality rates. Um, which are not so biased, also favor the U.S. So that's a point in the U.S. favor. Um, I guess I would say a few things, though, we forget. One, we do ration in the U.S., but in a very capricious and unfair way. You and I have seen patients, I think, who you've struggled to get basic care for those patients because they didn't have insurance or something like that. Um, I think the next thing I would say is that at the end of the day, I think we do have to look in the mirror a little bit when we notice that some of these European nations that are more thoughtful um, in how they allocate healthcare resources. They do have better life expectancy than we do, and they pay half of what we do in healthcare. Uh, and I think that's got to give us some questions. So in terms of the point of view of a citizen, um, I think, you know, you might be better off living in Sweden than in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Your life expectancy is better. Mm -hmm. I don't know. How do you feel about that? Because yeah, you're at a place where you provide ultra-complicated technical services. Yeah. But you also shove people out the door, do you not? At the yeah, yeah, yeah. no, especially in this in this campus. Um, I think, you know, I, I don't know if I have a solution for public health necessarily for for the entire population. But if I think of myself, I'd rather have the maybe a little bit more outdated therapy without having to worry about going bankrupt than having the newer, fancier drug. That I can't afford. Yeah, I, I guess that's me. You know, I think that peace of mind of, of having. I don't know, the the five a few, uh, or you know the carbotaxel, is is a lot more worth it, and it may maybe uh, maybe my survival will be a little shorter. But see, I guess okay. I I feel the exact same way as you, but part of me doubts the benefit of all that extra costly care at the end. Yeah. Uh, I think it's smaller than what we think, and yeah. and I think um, I think the importance of not being bankrupt I think is important. It's important yeah. for ones, and and I think when you actually survey patients, people feel very strongly that many people want to leave a legacy for someone else, uh, and they they do not wish to allow a cancer diagnosis to lead to their personal bankruptcy. Though too often that does happen in the United States, and I think we also forget that that there are things we don't do in our lives because we crave that healthcare security. So for instance, I'm not able to walk out on my job and, and, right. and become an entrepreneurial podcast maker, 
mm-hmm. which is what my destiny ought to be. No, <laughs> <laughs> but but no, you, we we you know we no, don't I have the freedom you, to yeah. do some very things things like that because it's uh, because we worry about the financial consequences. Were I to get sick, unfortunately, or a loved one to get sick, right? Exactly. It's 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 uh it's almost as bad as being in debt. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's I, I think there's very little worse than than feeling like you owe money to people. And uh, one of the things that's that comes close to that, maybe even worse, is if I lose my job, I can't get my drugs. Yes. You know, and that is really terrible in my mind. Yes. Um, so I don't know. You know, there are several ways that people suggest we can resolve this, you know, free market, blah, blah, blah. But but I'm not sure if there is a black and white way of doing it. You know, I think there's going to be trade offs. Yeah. And I'd rather trade off a shorter survival, you know, so that's just me. And when you talk about survival, you're talking about like on the order of weeks or days or months, right? Yeah, that's even months. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't think any of those things are truly uh, game changing to a point where I'd move to the U.S. to get this newer drug because I know that my life will be a lot different. Right. So what you would say is, for instance, if you were somebody who unfortunately had multiply relapsed solid tumor cancer, you wouldn't want to incur high personal payments to undergo broad molecular sequencing on the off chance you're going to get serafinib rather than just to try some etoposide or something like that. You're nodding your head. Even, and I guess I would say I share that sentiment, but I also believe that the etoposide might even win if you were to test it because I wouldn't be waiting for the treatment match. And etoposide is a still quite active agent. Um, But uh, we'll leave that for another day. Perhaps someday they'll do the study. Well, thanks so much for discussing these uh, recent nature papers. Yeah, no, thank you. All right, thanks for coming on. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? Um, How can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.